Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, so welcome everyone to this New Books Network podcast on Japanese studies. My name is Felicity Stone Richards. I am here interviewing two wonderful scholars who have edited a collected volume called Trans-Pacific Correspondence, Dispatches from Japan's Black Studies. Here with me, I have Professor Yuichiro Onishi, who is Associate Professor and Chair of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and Professor Fumiko Sakashita, Professor of American Studies at the College of Letters Ritsumeiken in Kyoto. Professor Onishi, Professor Sakashita, thank you very much for agreeing to join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Felicity. Thank you for having us. So, as we get started, Trans-Pacific Correspondence, Dispatches from Japan's Fact Studies. This is a collection of um, basically an area of Black studies that is not well known. The scholarship, the engagement of Black intellectual thought by Japanese scholars and you know, non-academic um, Japanese people, writers in Japan. So just to get started with, um, why did you decide to do this project? What was the motivation? Um, to publish this collection? Um, well, this you're right about the history of um, Black studies in Japan is really largely unknown in the um, English-speaking world. Um, and personally, I mean, I was quite surprised to learn that it, it has been around, it had been around, it has been around for a long time, actually, and that it was established in 1954. Um, This book sort of came into being um, during the period in which we were, um, the organization was celebrating its uh, 60th, the 60th anniversary. Um, And at that point, um, folks came together, Japanese scholars of, of Black Studies and others too, scholars of Black studies based in the U.S. and elsewhere. Fumiko-san, maybe there are others, too, coming from other parts of the world? Yes, uh, not only from the U.S., but also from Europe, like uh, Germany. That's right. And other uh, Asian countries, I guess. And um, that uh, particular 60th anniversary conference was the first time for us to start uh, sending out these COFOL papers uh, abroad, like uh, before that, uh, we have had uh, invited, you know, scholars from abroad as a keynote, but, uh, you know, celebrating um, the, our 60th anniversary, we decided to kind of, you know, include or recruit more participants from abroad. So that was uh, uh, definitely a different kind of uh, characteristics from um, our past conferences. And um, so that was part of the reason, I guess, why we kind of decided to uh, work on this uh, uh, book project. Uh, It it started as a like a 60th anniversary collection by uh, collecting, I mean, compiling those uh, written papers 
you know, presented by, uh, you know, conference participants into um, this volume. Right. And, um, yeah, throughout the, the, the journey, it kind of the project um, completely kind of, kind of changed. But yeah. that, that, was a, that was the initial purpose. Yeah. But one thing that... So, oh, go ahead. Um, just, so just for our listeners, this is the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Association um, yes. for Black Studies. So mm-hmm. this is Kokujin Kenkyu no Kai, um, the Association of Black Studies or Negro Studies, as it was um, called in the 50s. Um, so, you know, I guess a good place to start would be what is the Association of Black Studies? Why was it formed right. um, in the 50s? Yeah, so I, I, I looked into it as a part of my book project um, on Afro-Asian solidarity, and I was completely, like, basically drawn to their very distinct um, intellectual authority <laughs> that, that sort of, that was so evident um, when it was founded. In, in 1954, um, the historical context, as well as political context from which Japanese intellectuals came together, convened, formed a study group and reading group, engaging in various Black texts, not just the literary texts, but political texts as well, and the historical texts. And it came into existence really after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and they saw that as a kind of a critical opening um, for sort of a major dramatic kind of a democratic transformation um, in the United States, but world over where race and colonialism is concerned. And, and these scholars, Japanese scholars, again, came together with this strong desire on their part to kind of really work through these texts that were like really not so available, readily available in Japan. Um, and one of the leaders that founded um, Kokujin Kenkyu no Kai, Japan's Black Studies, his name is um, Nukina Yoshitaka, Yoshitaka Nukina, last name is Nukina. Um, throughout, particularly in post-war year, pre-war too, he, he was in the orbit of uh, Japan's Communist Party. And um, through that, he politicized and acquired his internationalist kind of perspective but he was also an Esperantist. Um, he immersed himself in a study of Esperanto, which is a sort of invented universal language that sort of challenged English as, as a universal language. Um, and I was just so drawn to these kind of very curious origins of Japan's Black study. So I dig, you know, dug more deeply into, into the genesis of it all. And what I discovered is that the, the Communist Party in Japan, but particularly in post-war, post-surrender, 1945 Japan, was an important um, kind of um, wellspring of, of radical thought. And, and, and the Black thought, or the, what they call the Negro question, was one of the key components of, of their sort of a political project of, of emancipation. And um, a lot of the U.S., based or Communist Party of the United States, CPUSA literature on the Negro question, basically kind of trickled into post-surrender Japanese society. And Nukina, sometime before 1954, and he wrote about this a little bit in the, in the sort of a newsletter, but um, that he discovered Du Bois's pamphlet, the book called The Negro. 
And it's this very expansive book about, you know, the, the role of African peoples in, in the movement of world history from the earliest moments in human history to that book was published in 1921. I forgot the specific year, but 20s. And, and it's this little pamphlet, but it's just an expansive book. And apparently that reading that book, discovering that book, which was um, translated into Japanese during the wartime, I think. And discovering mm. that book completely changed this outlook uh, on history and politics, um, discovered world that he had never known. And at that moment, he decided that he had to create a study group or reading group. And that was the sort of the genesis of, of Japan's Black Studies. And thereafter, what's remarkable, and Humiko-san can attest to this, what, what's remarkable, it started at Kobe City uh, Foreign Studies University. Is that how you translate it? Kobe Gaigo Daigaku. Kobe City University of Foreign Studies. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Yes. Yo, so that's where he start, it started with students. Another important convener, co-convener, who went on to play an important role in Japan's Black Studies is Hiromi Furukawa. Professor Hiromi Furukawa was also an important figure, student of Nukina, also Esperantist. He became a very important scholar of Langston Hughes and um, African-American literature. But what's cool about it is that the, both men and women participated, um, but ordinary people also participated in early years. So I, I, that, that too was a very, for me, key feature of Japan's Black Studies that it sort of existed outside of the academy, even though it was certainly you know, enabled by scholars. But it was very sensitive to creating a forum outside of the academy, which sort of like basically in sync with what Black Studies is. (laughs) (laughs) So so Black Studies is really kind of counter-hegemonic. And I mean, again, it's not an intrinsic thing. I think it has to do with the political kind of orientation of knowledge production that, that kind of intrinsically led to the certain type of Japan's Black Studies space and um, that too was a very much to me like important aspect of my discovery um, as far as uh, Japan's black studies intellectual authority um, other, other, you, yeah go ahead a, yeah um, no that's a very um, very good summary and a very interesting point you make because you know what I get from this what I got from the book is that you had a lot of people engaging with Black studies quite intentionally. It wasn't, uh, you know, oh, well, look at this, you know, really cool music or look at this really cool prose. It was, you know, they're already part of political movements. You know, they're part of Marxist groups. They're part of communist groups. They are obviously, you know, utterly dissatisfied with, you know, the American occupation, you know, with the support that the American occupation was given to, you know, the very militarists who were supposed to be kicked out of power and now back in power. Um, so every part of this is, you know, a very intentional political project. And as you said, it's not just an academic one, it was a community one of a lot of people trying to, you know, strategize and theorize about what are we going to do with the world now? What are we doing in Japan now? Where is Japan going? Right. Um, and I saw this also in the chapters that, um, focus on the spread of Afro-diasporic feminist thought and the engagement of Japanese women. Um, I was hoping, Professor Sekashita, if you could speak more now on the, um, you know, 
the role that Japanese women played in disseminating, engaging with Black feminist thought. Oh, I can do it. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. No, no, May, you can chime in though, because you you were trained by one of the one of the key thinkers or the participants of Japan's Black Study, Furumoto, um, Furumoto Professor Furumoto, a translator of a number of um, African American women. Um, authors and Caribbean women authors, um, Furu, Furomoto um, Atsuko, right? Atsuko, Atsuko Furomoto, mm-hmm. um, and um, one of the well, one of the this is a person that I also talk about in in this collection, Trans Pacific Correspondence. But one of the key member members of early years of Japan's Black Studies, her name is Yoriko Nakajima, and um, and she she was already uh, you know she was exposed to black radical space um, in the United States as a as a student studying abroad, political scientist studying studying abroad in Michigan, and thereafter she immersed herself in the civil rights struggle in the South. And this is in like you know early 60s, 1960, 61. Um, but anyway, she brought this knowledge because she came into contact with Robert Williams. And she, he's like, you know, lionized as this kind of important black power movement activist. But she brought this enormous knowledge and literature back to Japan's black study space and engaged the participants. So oftentimes we focus on the two founders, but particularly Nukina and uh, Furukawa Sensei. But Nakajima played a huge role. But anyway... Um, this S, the chapter that we're looking at focuses on, um, again, very distinct kind of Afro-diasporic feminist formation um, in Japan. And, and we, we focus on um, the exchanges of ideas and, and, and sensibilities between and among different um, Black women authors and, and Japanese scholars. But particularly, we hone in on this relationship between Paul Marshall and, uh, as I mentioned, Atsuko Furomoto, the professor who translated um, one of uh, Paul Marshall's uh, novels, um, Praise Song for the Widow, is the book that Furomoto-sensei translated um, into Japanese. And um, eventually, Paul Marshall was invited to, to Japan as a keynote speaker at Japan's Black Studies Annual Conference. But in that talk, she said something very, to me, was very, very revealing. And she said that I've always wanted to go back to, uh, go to Japan as a, as a little girl growing up in Brooklyn. And um, she, used to, she used to dream about uh, like a, digging a hole in the backyard of our home and then eventually she would get to Japan. And, and so she kind of chronicled or shared with the audience in Japan um, her version of Japanese dream. Um, but to me, that, that description really uh, was compelling in that as I read more of her novels, um, her protagonist would always create a space of her own. To, to be a black woman, where she one could be black women unencumbered, um, free of all the sort of oppressive things that are that, that black women were experiencing and subjected to. And that the hole that she dug in the backyard was one of those kind of, uh, oh, not, it's not an oasis, but something like that. She called it an escape hatch. 
into another world. Um, and what, to me, that metaphor revealed something about the coming together of Japanese women, authors, translators, and Black women artists and authors. In, the, in this chapter, we wanted to capture capture that distinct space of belonging that allowed women on both sides to engage in the project of reclamation, um, their own agency. Um, and um, one of the collections that we kind of touched on briefly, thanks to uh, Humiko's translation, I was able to kind of get a gl- uh, sort of gl- glimpse into how other Japanese women writers engage with African-American women literature. But um, the principal editor named uh, Fujimoto Kazuko put together this seven-volume um, uh, Japanese translation of African-American women literature. So Alice Walker, Zola Neale Hurston. Uh, I should know this, but um, there are other authors. Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Marshall wasn't there. Uh, Toni Morrison. Uh, um, Natsake Shange's... Um, I think mm. peace was in there, but anyway, what she did was um, this Fujimoto, the principal um, editor. She paired um, translated African American women literary texts with the with the accomplished, established Japanese women authors, and have had them read Black women's texts and then write reflective kind of essays in relationship to their own corpus that they produced. And and I was really I was really drawn to that um, that type of very deliberate kind of engagement, and it reminded me of, of of very much of the kind of praxis that Paul Marshall provided, which is that we have to dig a hole in the backyard, not mm. in the front yard, but in the backyard, very yes. non normative ways of thinking, backyard, so that we can dwell in our own space. Um, she used to call it the VW room, the Virginia reference to Virginia Woolf a room of our own. But so I wanted to really kind of take that kind of a perspective and then lift it up to the realm of trans-Pacific correspondence and that we were kind of exploring in the, in the, in, you know, in the, in the book. And it really carve out this very specific Afro-diasporic feminist inquiry that's pretty robust. And what you can see in that is a formation of very distinct genealogy of uh, women of color feminism through Afro-Asian kind of conversations. But anyway, it's, I, I had a really good time writing, writing that piece. And thanks again, thanks to Humiko-san. Really, like, I was able to tap into the Japanese women's voices and this, this space, the cultural sphere, like no other. You know, they're, they're so, like, grounded. You know, these, these Japanese women authors. Like Furumoto-sensei, she was so totally humble because we emailed her after, I mean, this is going to kind of a very informal conversations, but... Fumiko-sensei was mentored by Furumoto-sensei, who, you know, translated Paul Marshall's and many other texts. But, and, uh, yeah, she was totally humble. But, you know, I, I really do think that they produce some seriously important stuff that are useful for us to think differently about how people mm-hmm. come together. But anyway. <laughs> I found that the, the concept of the V, uh, what's the word? V, Virginia Woolf Room. Yeah, yeah. Like the the space where uh those you know um women of color like you know Japanese women and uh like um black African American women um kind of um 
uh, imaginatively kind of, uh, you know, corresponded, right? Like it's not like a, a physical conversation. And um, mm. I I don't think we included the, the uh, uh, section where Fromoto sensei talked about how she used to read those, you know, uh, novels in her kitchen. Oh, that's you know, right. In the middle, like, you know, while, while you know, she, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, housework and stuff, you know, she was kind of finding this nick of time and, oh, you know, wow. right, oh right, right. So, and also um, maybe uh, one of the, the female um, activists, Morisaki, uh, what's the yeah. first name? So other women of color, like Japanese women, who wasn't really uh, necessarily like engaged in like black studies, but the other like activism in Japan, she was also kind of talking about the importance of this space, like kitchen for women, right? So, and uh, like, you know, while we are kind of um, um, taking a look at those, you know, um, which, which uh, like stories, you know, to, to include, you know, we, we quite often came across this um, like anecdotal stories of women, you know, doing something important or doing some very serious conversation in the space of kitchen or, or like, you know, backyard, right? Like, you know, it's not like a, the um, official or, you know, public kind of space. It's more like a, a, you know, beauty parlor for like, you know, black women and that kind of stuff. But like, I, I found it quite very interesting like fascinated by that the fact that you know they kind of share that the uh the space not like physical space but um you're right like an intellectual or you know imaginative space so it's totally right and that i think yeah. in, when we're talking about that um Huromoto sensei and how she was basically her process of becoming an intellectual was bound up with her you know uh, child rearing and being a mother in a kitchen um and then we we were also looking at Paul Marshall and how she herself became writer through through the kitchen, like being together with with other women from the Barbados, who are all domestic workers in New York. And but kitchen was a place where they could be free and be able to be themselves and engage in political conversation, to anecdotal stuff, to gossip, and but that's where she learn to become a writer, she said, you know, she called these women the poets in a kitchen, you know, and, but these are domestic workers who were subjected to basically kind of a, then the modern day kind of slavery, um, their day laborers being, you know, sort of sent to different white suburbia of, uh, just above Bronx in, in Westchester County, probably in New York. I know I'm familiar with that area because I used to live in that Westchester County. <laughs> but anyway, um, so they get hired as a day laborer to work in white homes. And, but then, you know, after work, sundown, then they'll come home. But on the weekends, they have the kitchen. And that too is, you're right, that's their space and um, where they can be human. Um, you're right. And this is precisely one of the things that, you know, feminists, um, this is the one thing that feminists of all sorts have been, you know, screaming about to say, like, there is no, like, there is no separation of the public and private sphere. Like, there is no space where politics isn't happening. Um, And this is one of the reasons why I really love this collection, because you're showing that, you know, not only is this, you know, politics rife in this domestic space, but, you know, political 
development and evolution and intellectual discussion is also active in this space. It's not just the case that you have, you know, the, um, you know, patriarchal difficulties that are creating this space, but actually this space itself um, can be made into a creative hub by the women um, who populate it, which I thought was, you know, really extraordinary to show. Um, and yes, to show the imagination and the creativity in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was actually, again, one of the things that was really good about this collection is that, you know, there's a, you know, wide methodological variety here. You have history, you know, literature, theoretical engagement, and there is also, you know, this chapter that is an oral history. Um, So these are interviews of a number of professors that were active in the Black Studies Association, each giving us, you know, a small history of their political evolution at what, you know, what brought them into the Black Studies space. How did this space change them? And um, Professor Sagashi, I think you were... um, you know, active with putting together this section, if you could talk a bit more about, you know, some of the people you interviewed in this chapter, you know, why them, what were they talking about? Yeah, um, the, the chapter on, uh, well, it wasn't actually an interview, it was a, a, like a translation of a written uh, auto, either autobiography or uh, the talk they, they did at the uh, JBSA's uh, annual conference or like a monthly meeting. So um, it, we didn't initially plan to include this chapter, right? Like yeah. um, it, uh, it was a kind of coincidence. There was a, another chapter first included in this volume that our publisher suggested us to kind of take out or replace with something else. And um, since we had already um, included in the intro- introduction the brief autobiography of our own intellectual journeys as um, African-Americanist. I thought it would be great if we had more of these kind of um, stories from other JBC members of um, particularly like earlier generation. And um, because uh, um, we as scholars of Japan's Black Studies have been often asked and have constantly tackled this question of why we do what we do, right? Like why we non-black, like Japanese scholars doing black studies, African studies or Caribbean studies. And we've been constantly asked why, right? And we've been constantly asking ourselves why. So... So that that's partly why we decided to you know um, include our own stories, and so we we uh, thought you know it would be prob- that uh, the the readers would probably find it interesting to read other stories as well. And uh, I knew some of elder members uh, who had served as uh, either president or vice president of JBSA in the past had contributed their own autobiographic autobiographical essays um, on uh, JBS journal Kokujin Kenkyu, uh, Japan uh, and, and Black Studies. So, um, and back then I luckily uh, served as gen- uh, Secretary gen- General of the Association and in my office I stored all the back numbers of those uh, journals. So I decided to kind of thumb through the past uh, um back numbers and uh, kind of was able to find uh, these five essays, one already written in, in English because he 
Kurukawa Sensei um, presented that, that story at the, one of the annual conferences in, 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 in English. I think that was at Hiroshima mm -hmm. uh, University or somewhere. And uh, four out of five were written in Japanese, so I, I translated in, it into uh, English. And uh, so reading their... The, you know, um, each of their, their stories are different, right? But, uh, you know, we see they also kind of had tackled this question why, you know, uh, they do what, what they do. So it was very interesting to see how they, when and how aware, you know, uh, they, they became interested in this issue and how they were aware of, um, like, you know, um, becoming um, a scholar themselves of um, black studies. And so, so uh, we, we um, like, I, I really wanted to uh, title this particular chapter, like when and where we entered by kind of paraphrasing or like um, borrowing this phrase from Anna Julia Cooper's, you know, where and where, uh, when and where I enter. So it, it's about um, individuals, you know, um, intellectual autobiography or how one um, became um, the scholar of, you know, a um, particular field. But um, earlier generation, they, they are, most of them, um, of course, this uh, wartime experience or, you know, after this occupation period, like experience, a huge impact on them and particularly like Furukawa sensei mm -hmm. and I remember you know listening to other like you know our elder members also talking about similar stories of how as young uh, boys you know uh, school um, students they kind of um, saw this you know racially segre segregated uh, military facilities you know um, set up for white soldiers and black soldiers, you know, in occupational, you know, Japan, like, uh, especially like in Kobe, where they, they, uh, they lived. And so that kind of, um, like a question um, really kind of made them aware of, you know, what was going on outside of the world. And mm -hmm. So that was one of the, like, even before, you know, deciding to include this, particular essay like I had always been interested in that that particular experience like for the first generation kind of um JVSM members like racism and other issues wasn't necessarily like a second hand information right mm. unlike yes. you know like a later generation like us you know we, we weren't necessarily like you know experiences experienced these um things you know um firsthand but you know they kind they they witnessed it right like right. they they were there and so that was um one thing that that's probably different uh difference between like our experience and their experience you know right. of becoming like a japan black studies scholar but uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so that was no, that's a really good point about the earlier generations. They, they actually witnessed um, domination and um, 
racial or otherwise, but certain kind of dominant hegemonic thing that's controlling their lives. But then they've been they were fed the ideals of American democracy, and then every day they're like in Kobe, they're seeing segregation in the military bases, and I mean that must just like threw them off in different ways. Um, um, but one thing that I the story that I like in the section that you you know translated is um, Kato Kato Sensei, and um, why do I study black literature? And um, I, well, the the fact that he lived in Manchuria, so that's Japanese colonial state, right? So mm. he was a settler, Japanese settler colonial, you know, descendant of Japanese settler colonialism. Anyway, and then he came back and then just impoverished, you know, lived lived a very poor, poor life and um, struggled and survived. And then and all the black literature kind of basically was his sort of ticket to liberation and, you know, humanness. And and to me, like he 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 says, why, why, why did I turn to black study? Why do I study? And it had to do with what kind of person. Am I, you know, that it's a very kind mm. of deep philosophical, you know, who am I kind of question. It's about your own existence. And um, so that too is very, to me, like there's something there that's common, common theme um, feature in the Japanese scholars turn to black thought or black literature, black knowledge. It, it a lot forced them to question their own kind of social existence. And oftentimes it's, it gets political from there, but, and um, surely many of them are connected to like the left space, but, but that's, per, I mean, for us too, for me too, I mean, that's kind of persistent. Like who are my kind of question? Um, very, very much ontological kind of question. Um, yeah. And so you speak somewhat um, in the collection, both of you, on how each of you also came um, to Black Studies, because obviously, you know, you're talking about this generational shift that, you know, the older generation lived through the occupation. They lived through having to struggle with, you know, what Japan did as an imperial power to other nations. Um, and then they also witnessed, you know, Jim Crow American segregation and the treatment of Black Americans, you know, right in their home. So this is, you know, very, you know, very particular experience. Nevertheless, you know, go one generation next, we come to your generation that still manages to, to develop um, this relationship with Black Studies. And I'm curious as to how that happens now without this older experience, you know, how are you coming to this? I think we, we maybe we're kind of perhaps similar process, I guess. Like in my case, I... It, like, uh, like, like you said, Felicity, that, you know, we didn't necessarily have that direct kind of impactful experiences only like, uh, for, you know, um, first generation or um, second. I think we, we consider ourselves as third generation, I guess, among, uh, among uh, JBSA members. So, so it's totally different, but uh, like, in my case, it was like a coincidence. Like I, I, I had a um, fortune to to be able to like you know to see, I mean encounter like you know from all senses, uh, work or you know I, I happened to 
enter the, the college where she she was teaching, right? So so her her uh, team taught course on human rights had a major, you know, gave me a major impact. And I wanted to learn more about civil rights movement and other stuff. But uh, I was so naive and young that I wasn't really like aware of um, how this issue of like you know racism and other like structural discrimination and stuff mm-hmm. were like universal or like how um, where I was uh, situated in this whole system, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't really aware of my kind of role in this until like I, I uh, started studying black studies in the States at Michigan State University. Like I, it was just, so, so in my case, it was kind of late, really late. Like I was already like, you know, in my early thirties when I finally was able to kind of see a parallel or, you know, like a universality of this, you know, um, issue of racism and, you know, injustice and, and then how I um, was kind of uh, very com- in a complex position where I, um, I'm, um, I'm consi- I was considered as like a student of color or woman of color in the state, but um, at the same time, um, I was, I am uh, a member of like majority, like dominant, no, dominant society in Japan. So I used to feel very uncomfortable when uh, my friend in the States, you know, call me like, you know, or like try to include me as like a pe- people of color or women of color or, so I understand that the uh, injustices and, you know, inequality as uh, an international student, like female student, non-American student in the States. But, um, you know, back home, uh, my my position is completely opposite, right? Like different. Mm-hmm. So that kind of very, um, not necessarily complex, but it's like a contradictory kind of, you know, positionality made me all, always kind of aware of... Uh, Again, this this question of like why you know I do what I do, mm-hmm. why this is important to me, right? Yeah. yeah so no, I totally, yeah, I totally echo that. Um, that that Japaneseness, that awareness, my awareness of Japaneseness as a mm-hmm. representing certain power, and um, and for me, like similar. I mean, I. I I, my entry into black studies, black history, black thought, very academic. So exposed to readings that I've never been exposed to in college. And I, you know, studied history, U.S. history, labor history, you know, African-American history and all of that. Then, then I went back to Japan and I have been away from Japan for a long time, ever since I was 12 or something like that. And I worked, I worked in a warehouse and you know, in the U.S., I studied white. We didn't really use white supremacy, but I was using whiteness and construction of whiteness as a political problem. And and um, and I went back to Japan, and I witnessed like racism in Japan. You know, like a real way. Like so, 
where I worked in the warehouse, next to it was uh, uh, foreign workers, like immigrant workers from Southeast Asia working in a meatpacking. And they're described in racialized ways. They're kitanai, kitsui, kurushi, 3K. They do 3K stuff. And the Japanese workers will be like, we're not like them, you know. And um, I'm like, well, this is like totally racial. And but we, they were not thinking in those terms. But anyway, and then um, the warehouse to get the warehouse, the bus, the public bus would take take people through segregated Korean neighborhood in Kawasaki City. Why well, that too? I never knew, you know. So I started to see Japanese ness in a similar way as the the sort of whiteness, um, the construction through domination, you know. The difference constructed through domination, and so that point, I, be, I just became interested. Well, there's got to be some, it's got to be some Japanese folks who are like aware of this problem and engaging in opposition and resistance. And then I st- started to kind of see these Japanese scholars, anti-imperialist, anti-war, anti-racist people, like a pockets of like a resistance in the recent past, like in the late 60s and 70s. So that's, that was my kind of like entry point into doing Black studies in a way that kind of brought me closer to who I am and, and I guess where I belong, my position. It's very similar to Humiko-san, like becoming aware of my own positionality in between U.S. and Japan kind of thing. And um, the Black studies was my kind of entry point to engage in sort of critique of both at the same time. Yeah. But thank you. Yes, that is, you know, really what I think is most important about this collection and, you know, with many of the other scholars who are now doing work in this, you know, Afro-Japanese space, to highlight that, you know, this isn't just a question of, you know, cultural exchange, like there's a, you know, political evolution here that is at work with people who engage. Um, with Afro-diasporic thought. Um, and for listeners, just really quick, the uh, the three Ks, Kitanai, Kiken, and Kitsui, refer to dirty, dangerous, and demanding work. So, um, you know, it's a type of thing that ethnic minorities, certain ethnic minorities in Japan are associated with basically dirty work that nobody wants to do and really unpleasant, poorly paid, poor, you know, there's no permanent contracts, this kind of work. Um, um, so one of the things that... I guess as we, you know, approach the end, because we're talking about, you know, your engagement with this as stimulating kind of political awareness, political consciousness of the situation of, you know, racism in Japan, the, you know, the hierarchical structure of Japan. Is this still ongoing? Um, do you think this kind of um, engagement with Black Studies today? Where do you see the future of Black Studies? As this political interaction, um, do you see this still ongoing? I think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, like um, as for like JBSA Japan Black Studies Association, it's um, their role it has become slightly different, right? Like you know, uh, in it, it started as like a, a civil. Um, how do you call it? Like a civilian group, not necessarily like an academic group. Like a group of pe- group of people who are very aware of um, political 
um, you know, uh, situation and other like, you know, issues. So um, earlier, you know, uh, members were very much active in like, you know, anti-war movement, student movement and other kind of activism. So we're not no longer like that um, because it's has it has become more institutionalized, I would say. Like, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. considered more as a like academic society, like academic association. Um, Partially because um, the the academic um, atmosphere has changed as well. Like you know, like for uh, like uh, junior scholars or other like you know grad student, you know they need to publish or they need to you know present <laughs> yes. papers at the conference. That the 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 association that that has to be considered as like you know academic rather than like you know. Uh, politically active, right? <laughs> so, yes. so th- that's just like a um, we kind of um, how do you call it? Like, um, so we we're aware of the importance of the both, but more kind of you know focus on this academic side. But that doesn't necessarily like you know that like we are no longer active in that fit particular field because. I'll give you an example, like, um, when um, this, the recent Black Lives Matter movement happened, when um, Mr. George Floyd got, you know, killed, the, the back then, the, uh, the contemporary um, president, the, the president of JBSA, you know, decided to uh, issue the statement to his members, its members, about the inhumanity or, you know, injustice of uh, against, you know, uh, black people. So that was just like a statement, but, uh, you know, he, he wanted to make sure that the association was aware of what, what's going on in, in the, the world. And, uh, you know, he was aware of the, the importance or role of, you know, our, uh, the group, you know, association with this um, very, um, uh, outstanding history of like activism, right? And uh, even you know, for those you know scholars of Jap- um, Black Studies who are not necessarily like our member, like the member of J- JBSA, uh, particularly like you know recent years, you know they have been very aware of the the importance or role of scholars, you know, in Japan doing Black Studies, Black History. Especially when um, in the media or you know the public are kind of indifferent to the problem of racism or you know mm. the issues of um, negative portrayal of you know people of color. So so um, we've been de- doing what we can do, I guess, like, you know, <laughs> through, through education or, you know, through, through like teaching students, our students, but also like, you know, sending out some academic kind of, you know, input uh, to the media, you know, through media, like, you know, you sound like last week, you know, you were interviewed by like, you know, one of the Japanese, you know, uh, media, right. Like about, about uh, George Floyd case. So, so, you know, we've been busy, but we've been trying to kind of, you know, um, squeeze <laughs> some time. And also, like, you know, um, we've been 
trying to do like a translating, you know, more work. Like I think this past year, uh, not only like you know academics, but also like those professional translators have uh, published like a lot of like translation of you know Black Lives Matter kind of related books. You know those two memoir by Alicia Garza and Patrice Covers that yes. that were you know that were published like recently. They have been already translated into Japanese and also. Um, like uh Tanas Codes eight uh what's the the title? The it, Oh Between no, the World and Me. Oh no that that have been already translated. I'm talking about uh eight uh eight more years or uh what was the word? The 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 more yeah, the recent one. So and also like Angela Davis or others, you know, they they have been um translated. The, those recent work, more recent work, have been translated mm. into Japanese, you know, thanks to, like, you know, the interest in among, among uh, non-academic people. Mm. So I should, I should give credit where credit is due. So Humiko-san was instrumental, actually, in, in doing this, you know, activism kind of, in Japan, Japanese major Japanese broadcasting station uh, was airing really racist caricature, the anti-black characters in the media, and Japan's black studies scholars stepped up in a big way and um, pressured the most most powerful um, broadcasting station, brought them to its knees, and. <laughs> Um, made him apologize um so that the media person that i'm i was speaking to last week <laughs> he told me that he actually went to your <laughs> seminars which was a mandatory oh. <laughs> broadcasting station <laughs> forced its employees because they messed it up <laughs> so the forced its employees to take all these seminars taught by japan's black study scholars like you humiko-san so he's, he said he went to your seminar. Oh, that's good. Well, but actually, actually, the, the letter that letter was sent by uh, thirteen American studies scholars. Oh, like, is that right? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, in, including me. Like you know, uh, like um. So I think we had two, three black studies scholars, like black uh, African American history history scholars, but. Uh, not necessarily like you know it, it wasn't about you know JBSA project oh, it yeah, was yeah, about that's right, that's right, yeah right. it was yeah. like uh, American studies scholars in Japan right so, right right so, right but yeah. another thing that I should I should I should acknowledge so because of that type of activism that she was part of obviously the media and other sort of publishers or newspapers presses recognize the important voice that scholars like her is bringing to the public sphere. So I mean, you were columnist too, right? For one of the one of the newspapers, basically doing black Black History One Hundred and One kind of column, right? So I think, yeah, I think that's important, you know, to um, kind of acknowledge that that these scholars are kind of staking out new spaces um, to to engage in this um, work of making known the centrality of race and racism in our experiences. Um, but yeah. And yes, one of the amazing things that we did see from the, you know, 
Black Lives Movement in Japan is that you also have a lot of young people who are now um, claiming these spaces, you know, starting to rev up their fight against the Japanese racism. Um, because, you know, you could see in all of the, you know, all of the mainstream discussion, one, it was already extraordinary that there was a mainstream discussion in Japan on anti-Blackness. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen one that was so widespread, but you still had, you know, backlash from people who were saying, oh, but this is Americans' issue. What does this have to do with us? Why are you having these disruptive marches? Um, and, you know, one of the things that the activists were pointing out was like, one, you should have marches anyway, even if there were no Black people in Japan, even Japan did not contribute to anti-Blackness in any way, because, you know, this is America we're talking about. This is your main ally. <laughs> you know, we are invested in this country. Therefore, we are, you know, a part of what this country does. But you also have the fact that there are Black immigrants in Japan. There are a number of half-Black Japanese people in Japan, you know, who suffer their share of discrimination, um, mockery, bullying, and, you know, police harassment. Um, so already the movement, you know, has really highlighted this. But again, it never stops with Black lives. You always have the connection to, and by the way, still racist against Koreans, still racist against Chinese, still racist against Ainu, Okinawans, you know, immigrant Filipino, Vietnamese workers, you know, the, as with, you know, BLM, the explosion of anti-racist work ends up bringing in everybody else, which I thought was really extraordinary and gives me, you know, a lot of hope for, you know, the spread of anti-racist movements in Japan. Oh, that's a really, I mean, I think that's something um, that I I hold on to as a thesis, which is the power of Afro-Asian connections. This Japan's Black Studies, generally speaking, is one of the examples. But you're right that they really do see race has nothing to do really with like skin color or biological thing, difference they really do approach race as a political thing. It's a political category. So blackness too, it has nothing to do with skin color, but it's a political kind of um, political category. So in those spaces, like BLM marches and demonstrations in Tokyo, what, 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 I mean, I wasn't there. I just watched some clips and stuff. It's incredibly multiracial, you know? And I think you're right that, there's something there, the articulation of blackness is, is so inclusive. It's like the next closest thing to utopia, almost. But it's, it's a black space, like it's a BLM <laughs> marches. And I, I think that's like the, one of the major um, feature of, of uh, black studies kind of intellectual th- thrust um, or the movement you know, Afro-Asian movement space in Japan is precisely that kind of coming together of just different people on political grounds. And yeah, that's really cool part. Yeah, exciting. Um, yeah. Blackness as a kind of utopia. I like that. <laughs> I think that's a good, <laughs> that's a yeah, good place. Yeah, in Japan, so, it, it appears as a next closest, I really do, like next closest thing to utopia. <laughs> it's not quite utopia yet, but it's getting there. <laughs> Well, I think that is a perfect note um, to end on. Um, Professor Onishi, Professor Sakashita, thank you so, so much. 
for this. This was a very illuminating discussion. Um, and just a reminder, the collected edition Trans-Pacific Correspondence Dispatches from P- Japan's Black Studies, which was published in 2019, please do pick it up. It is a superb collection and a really important you know, history and theoretical engagement on Japanese Black Studies scholarship. Thank you again for agreeing to meet with me. Thank you, Thank Felicity. You. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.